You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. You can feel the frustration rising, can't you? I mean, Peter, James, John, the Twelve, just chapters before in the Gospel of Mark, were preaching the Gospel and casting out demons and healing the sick and things were going well and people were coming to them. And now, in chapter 9, the things they could do before, they can no longer do. Before they had power, now they are powerless. Before they had influence, their influence is waning. Instead of people coming to them for help, people are coming to them with frustration and anger. There is arguing, there is strife. The power they had is gone. They feel weak, and you would never call their ministry at this moment fruitful. They are indeed fruitless. Perhaps even though they walk with Jesus, they feel more distant from Him than they did before. And I wonder how many of us know what that feels like. What it feels like to look back into the past and be able to see, you know, at that season in my life, things were rich and my walk with Jesus was robust and there was this vitality and this passion and this, this, just, this, this glory. And now, you know, life happened and other things happened and, you know, pandemics happened and 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 circumstances have just gotten beyond my control and I can't quite get this figured out and my faith feels just so less alive and not vital and not rich and I Jesus feels distant and I wonder how many of us have experienced that kind of waxing and waning in our walk with the Lord it was a time of excitement and then we found ourselves in a time of dryness, like a wasteland. If we do, we have a sense of what it feels like to be the disciples, don't we? The good news is, Jesus wants to help us in the same way that he wanted to help them. Whether the disciples are in the first century or the 21st century, Jesus has work that he wants to do. And sometimes the work he wants to do means discovering what's getting in the way of the work he wants to do. And the thing that has to come clear for these disciples, these guys in this passage, they have to come to see the trustworthiness of Jesus. They have to come to the place where they see and believe and trust that they can trust him with control over the ministry, control over their lives. That's the question that he is pushing them to deal with. Who is in control? Who do we trust? Do we trust in ourselves, the disciples, their ability? Maybe they're trusting in their track record. We used to be able to do this. Surely we can do it again. And we get into those ruts, don't we? Everybody knows that we're you know, a leader. We've got a reputation to live up to. We've got a good track record. And we are, 
have a track record of fruitful ministry. And I, it feels really rough right now. And living up to the expectations when things feel so difficult. I mean, how do we... Jesus wants them to see, he wants us to see that all of these are attempts to look like we have it together. And attempts to look like we have it together are always a refusal to give Jesus control, aren't they? The disciples have to deal with this central reality that Jesus can't have his way as long as we think we've got it together. Jesus can't have his way and we can't experience his best as long as we have this facade. We've got it together. We're good. We can handle this. So we start with the transfiguration. Peter, James, John, the inner circle are off with Jesus going up a mountain. Almost a week has passed since that moment where Jesus and Peter go head to head, kind of an in this corner Jesus, in this corner Peter, somebody gets called Satan, just flying off the handle, things are going crazy. A little bit of time has passed, we've heard this crucial declaration that Jesus is the Messiah, we've discovered that it doesn't mean what Peter thinks it means, and now we're going to get some more information on what it actually means, and that information comes on a mountain. And this mountain ends up being what C.S. Lewis called a thin place. Maybe you've experienced a thin place. For Lewis, thin places were places where we had experiences and places where like the curtain, the veil between heaven and earth feels a bit thin. Maybe it's a place uh, where Jesus made himself known to you uniquely. Maybe it's an altar in a sanctuary where you first felt the joy of communion with Christ and the forgiveness and reconciliation that he brings. Maybe it's a place where he brought you from freedom to some substance or to some, something else. But that place forever has a significance for you because it's a place where God has made himself known in unique and perhaps even ways that have never been repeated. That's what this mountain is like for Peter, James, and John. They go up the mountain. And now, if we're attentive readers of the Bible, anytime a mountain comes into play, we should, our Bible spider senses should tingle. Because mountains are places in the Bible that are associated with the presence of God. We go a little bit further, and there's a cloud. And those senses tingle a little bit more. Because clouds are associated with the presence of God, aren't they, all through the Bible? If you think back about the children of Israel marching through the wilderness, they met God at the foot of Mount Sinai. There's a cloud, there's a fire and smoke. Moses' face was illumined and shining when he came down off that mountain after talking to God. And as God went with his people, his presence was marked by a cloud of fantastic glory when the tabernacle was constructed the cloud descended on the tent when they passed through the wilderness god was before them as a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night so when anytime we get mountains and clouds or 
luminescent people, dazzling white clothes, God is revealing something new. What's the thing he's revealing? He's revealing something about Jesus. Just before, we've heard Peter declare, you are the Christ. You're the one God has chosen to rescue his people. Now he got the words right. He didn't understand the full implications of that at the time. And now on the mountain, God is revealing that that confession is true. So that's what's going on here. Like Peter has said, you're the Christ, and that divine revelation is being confirmed with this revelation of God on a mountain. And they see Moses, and they see Elijah, and these are kind of two representative figures from Israel's past, Moses is responsible for the law in the Old Testament. Elijah represents the prophets. It's kind of the whole law and the prophets. God at work in his people. The God who is at work in Moses is at work in Jesus. The God who spoke through the prophets is speaking through Jesus. And if we don't get all of the clues, which we probably should, it's just going to get spelled out for us. They hear this voice. This is my son, my beloved son. Listen to him. Now, Peter, again, is one of the kind of guys, maybe you know people like this, maybe you are like this, when you get in a situation and you're not quite sure what to do, your mouth starts going. And it's rarely good or healthy, what, like just things come out, and maybe the filter is gone, and you're nervous, and you're anxious, you're scared, and just stuff's, all, you're, you're, did I just say that? And you want to pull it back, but you can't pull it back because it's out there, and that's, here's Peter, he's like, hey, let's build some tents some tab- dwelling places, tabernacles, right? After all, when the glory shows up in the Old Testament, the glory has a tabernacle. So let's build some dwelling places. One for Moses, one for as if these guys are going to be around for a while. <laughs> it's just Peter doesn't get it. Let's build these dwellings. One for you, Jesus. One for Moses. One for Elijah. And Mark tells us he had no idea what to say because he was scared out of his mind. So he just blurt, he's just blubbering stuff all over the place. And then God says, (laughs) listen to Jesus. He is my chosen one. You can can kind of see the contrast, right? Here's Peter needs to just be quiet. Close the mouth, open the ears. Because it's very hard to listen to Jesus if you're blubbering on about building shelters for him, right? So in that moment where things are, he's unsettled, he's terrified, Don't try to handle things, Peter, by coming up with some, hey, I don't know what to do. Let's have a building project. It's an effort to be in control, Peter. Just chill. Listen to Jesus. He's the chosen. He's my anointed rescuer, my son. And all through the Psalms, when God says, this is my son, he's the king, the king of Israel, the king of the nation. And all of that is brought forward and carried and in Jesus is endowed with this vocation to be the king of all. The king of the Jews, king of the Gentiles, all of us. Peter, however, has not learned not to put on the I've got it all together facade. He has a plan. 
let's build some shelters. And he has to kind of be put in his place, gently, implicitly, but that's what happens. Jesus is affirmed, and Peter is supposed to be getting this reality that if you want his best, don't think you've got it all together. Just back up. Take a deep breath. Instead of offering your plan, just listen to Jesus. We can't have his way. We can't have his best. As long as we think our plan is the thing that matters, that we've got it all together. And then it all disappears. And it's just then. The revelation has come. That moment is over. And they begin to come down the mountain. Then Jesus says something to them that is puzzling to many of us. Keep it a secret. Don't tell anybody until after the Son of Man, a title Jesus used for himself, has been raised from the dead. And we think, okay, we get that. We've read the gospel. He's going to the cross. That's what the Messiah does. He's going to die for the sins of the world and then be raised from the dead. Peter has no idea what Jesus is talking about. And you might think, well, we're doing pretty good if we know more than Peter does. <laughs> but what's going on here, right? Peter, and this is emphasized, is questioning Jesus. But he's not, he's not bringing the question out publicly. He's keeping the question to himself. He's questioning in his heart. They keep the matter to themselves. What could this rising from the dead mean? Right? And it's helpful to understand a little history. In the ancient world, first century Jews, so many of them were looking forward to something called the resurrection. But they weren't looking forward to the resurrection of the Messiah. They were looking forward to the resurrection of all the faithful Israelites. Right? When, when God would come and rescue them, then like everyone who had felt the oppression of the pagan Gentiles and all this Rome and of the other oppressors before him, when God does this spectacular rescuing thing, the faithful dead are going to be raised up. And they don't have a category for like one person getting raised up ahead of everybody else. That's not in their theology. And they really don't have a category for the Messiah being that one person if they had a theology where one person was getting raised from the dead ahead of everyone else. Because in, we spent some time reflecting on this as we've come to this point, but in the first century, a Messiah was not someone who goes and gets crucified. That means you're not the Messiah if you wind up dead after the conflict with the bad guys. Right? The Messiah was someone who leads a revolt, someone who liberates the people from oppressive bondage, someone who would send Pilate packing if he made it out alive at all. And those power players from Judea who made their bed with the Romans would probably get what's coming to them too. And if the guy who thinks he's the Messiah goes down, it just means he wasn't. So Peter wasn't expecting the Messiah to die. He was expecting the Messiah to win. And if you're not expecting the Messiah to die, the Messiah being raised from the dead, well, that's, not, that's a non-starter. So here's Peter again. He, he doesn't get Jesus. He believes he's the Messiah. He's seen the spectacular revelation, but he, he hasn't yet surrendered, has he? he hasn't, he's not trusting Jesus. He's still, and the fact that he, I mean, what should he have done? Questioning among themselves what this rising from the dead could mean. You can kind of imagine, here's, Jesus is making his way. There's the trail down the side of the mountain. If you're like backpacking, maybe you can imagine what that might be like. And you're like, 
off on a day hike or something and you're coming down the mountain and it's kind of an easy stroll maybe jesus is a little bit ahead and peter and james and john are maybe a few feet behind him and they're like rising from the dead like you can they're trying to figure this out they don't have a category for it they are struggling it and they don't want jesus to hear because they're they'd be embarrassed if he takes it for granted you ever been in a situation like that where somebody says something they assume you know what they're talking about and you don't want to let them know that you don't know what they're talking about because then you wouldn't be embarrassed that you're not in the loop on whatever the thing is that's how these guys feel right now what does he mean by that are we supposed does he know something we don't know are we supposed to know this and don't, shh, don't he's coming back shh. you kind of get there's just this feel right because they want jesus to think they've got it together they want jesus to think that they've just they are large and in charge and he's lucky to have them on his team and what they should be doing is saying jesus we don't understand teach us after all the voice of God has just said, listen to you, so we'd like to hear more about that. We're all ears. But you never hear the disciples going, hey, Jesus, we're all ears. Would you please teach us, instruct us? Instead, they've got questions. They keep their questions to themselves. And they try to handle it. You ever try to handle it? Well, Jesus' way is the best way, and we can't have his way. Until we learn we don't have it together so just these little, these little clues all through this passage that these guys have not yet surrendered to jesus's way and they're missing out on his best because they think they've got it together they catch up with the rest of the guys and there's a crowd and we're accustomed to the crowds because they're following Jesus and his disciples all over the place. But this crowd's a little different, isn't it? Because there's a conflict. Seems like every chapter in Mark has a new conflict, doesn't it? And there's an argument happening. So Jesus naturally says, hey, what are you guys arguing about? And this one guy comes out of the crowd, and he is not happy with the disciples. Because he sought them out. He had heard about their signs and wonders and there with Jesus, and he's a miracle worker, and his son had been possessed by a demon for a very long time, and the thing tried to kill him and kept him from speaking and would throw him into the fire to try to burn him and the water to try to drown him. And, find, and you can imagine, especially you know, if your kids have ever been in a precarious or dangerous situation, you know how painful that is, don't you? And you know, you know you want to rescue, but but you know you don't have what it takes to do it. You don't have it all together. You're not in control, and you're watching the world spin out of control, and you want to fix it, and you can't fix it. And the pain that your child is suffering is compounded by the fact that you can't do a thing about it. And so this guy is here, and he's coming to Jesus, and he's in desperation, and he thought it was going to get fixed, but Thaddeus doesn't know what he's doing anymore. Come on! Jesus, your people, listen to what he says. I brought you my son, and I asked your disciples to cast out the demon, but they couldn't do it. So his fear that his child is going to be drowned by a demon, compounded by the fact that he can't do a thing about it, compounded by the fact that he thought the people he thought could help can't do a thing about it, and now there's just this just ferocity and pain urgency and it's all there 
The disciples are still, I mean, they're arguing. Anytime you're arguing about, like, why the ministry isn't working is a good sign that Jesus is not having his way in that situation. (laughs) His arguments are, it's not my fault, it's his fault. No, 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 you you didn't say it the right way. You didn't say the thing. They're trying, well, it used to work, why doesn't it work anymore? And Jesus said it would work, and now... You can see there's just this selfish, it's not my fault, I gave it my best shot. People are blaming people, and no one is yielding control to Jesus. And everyone is missing out on his best. Jesus, again, you see his... Frustration. You faithless generation, how much longer must I be among you? And it feels like Jesus is saying, we've spelled it out so plainly what the kingdom is like, what God is like, what I want to do. And you guys are so consumed with looking good and having the power, all of these things. And it's faithlessness. Faithlessness. And that invites us to think about the nature of faith, right? Because we throw that word around a lot, and I think we all think we know what it means, but do we like, What does Jesus want? Sometimes, if you watch... Some preachers, faith is like like a magic bean, and if you have enough of it, you'll get whatever you want. It's like a seed. You just plant the seed of faith, and if you have enough of it, then like blessings from heaven will rain down on you. And if you're not having blessings from heaven, then you must not have enough faith. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is diagnosing the reality that those around him, the disciples, the crowds, in this conflict, are not exhibiting trust. It's not that they need more faith so that Jesus can do something for them. It's that they are holding on to control instead of yielding it to him and trusting him with it. The Greek word translated faithless could be you untrusting generation. You unbelieving generation. Why don't you trust me? Why don't you have confidence in me? And it invites the question, what does Jesus have to do for us to trust him? Voices from heaven? Miracles? These guys had all of that, and they still insisted, we've got it all together. 
we know what we're doing. And Jesus is more of a token than a Lord. Faithlessness is only faithlessness because it doesn't trust Jesus to do what none of us can do. That's where faith comes in. Faith is saying, Jesus, I don't have what it takes. I don't have it all together. I don't have control. I trust you. I believe that you do. I trust you to do what I'm unable to do. That's where the cross, that's where the story's going. Jesus, who ransoms the world with his blood, he's the only one who can. And when we come to faith in him, It's not a formula. It's not a process where if you tick this box, you get that result. It is a self-humbling, I don't have what it takes to forgive my sin. I don't have what it takes to shine your light in my heart. I don't have what it takes to turn my anger and fear and anxiety and frustration and just rebellion into love and glory and holiness. Jesus, I don't have what it takes. Only you do. Won't you do something about it? Faith is saying, Jesus, I don't have it all together. Any attempts to control my circumstances were a facade. I trust you. And that's what this daddy says. I mean, he's got, he's trusting Jesus somewhat. He's there, right? <laughs> he showed up. Here's my kid. I can't fix my problem. I need your help. And so he says, I believe, Jesus. I believe. But wherever the deficiencies are that I don't know about, you've got to do something. I believe. Help my unbelief. I trust you. Help me in the places where I've not yielded trust to you. I, I'm, I have faith. Help me where I'm faithless. And there's this, this rich, lovely humility there, isn't it? I mean, he's coming. He's coming to Jesus. You're here. You're in the room. You're watching the live stream. You want Jesus to be at work, but even in that coming, there are places in all of our hearts where He's not Lord. And He's saying, won't you yield that control to me now? And if you do, the riches of the kingdom of God my best, my way, Jesus says, will flood your life. Jesus can't have his way as long as we think we've got it together. And friends, there is immense, immense cultural pressure to look like we've got it together. Especially right now. And I'm pretty sure that the Lord Jesus Christ is trying to make sure all of us know that none of us have it together. None of us. If, if, if there were ever a moment where we should know we are not in control, like 2020 is the moment, isn't it? <laughs> and how do we respond to that? Well, you, you see how the disciples respond to this we're not in control, so we can either kind of circle the wagons, 
pull out our weapons, our shields, whatever our, you know, our arguments, our rhetoric, our stats, whatever. We're not in control, but we've got a spreadsheet and we'll, that this tells us what the, I mean, all of these things where we're trying to sort of, here's the data and here's, uh, you know, it's just their agenda and we get into this kind of just our society Discovering it's not in control is just circling the wagons and blaming the other folks. Friends, the church must not, must not fall to that nonsense. Jesus is Lord regardless. <laughs> Jesus is Lord in the pandemic. Jesus is Lord over all things, regardless of, where civic, of whether civic authorities acknowledge him or not. He is Lord. He is in control. And we are not. And the most important thing we can discover in this weird year is that truth. Jesus is Lord, I am not. He upholds all things for the power of his right arm. I do not. So when things fall apart, if we kind of slide back into our little hovels or our groups and just blame the other side, right? that's what the disciples do, not the right response, is it? What is the right response? Well, that's what the, hey, Jesus, now that we're alone and you fixed the problem, why couldn't we do it? And they go into the house privately, Mark tells us, because <laughs> they sure aren't going to show the humility, Jesus, would you teach us out here in front of everybody, right? Now, that would have been a good thing if they'd been in front of the crowds and said, hey, you know, Jesus, why can't we do this? Can you teach us some things? Great learning opportunity, a little on-the-job training. Here's a kid that needs to be healed. We clearly aren't doing a good job. We want to trust you. Teach us some stuff, and let's just, let's turn this disaster into a constructive discipleship experience. Is that what they do? It's not what they do, right, because they're prideful. And they do not want everybody else to know what they all, they don't want to admit what everybody else already knows, that these guys don't know what they're doing. They think they do, but they don't. So they go in the house, the boy's fine now, he, Jesus has rescued him, brought him to lively, vital health. They go into this house, and one of these guys, we're not told which one, the disciples kind of collectively say, privately, where no one else can hear them and know how, like, not apt they are. Why couldn't we do it? Notice they're still entirely self-oriented here. <laughs> Even at this point, they're not saying, thanks be to God, Jesus, for the work that you've done. They're saying, why couldn't we do it? We, us. Here's our focus. And Jesus responds, this kind can come out only through prayer. And I'm thinking about this answer that he gives them in, in the context of this contrast, right? You've got faithless generation, and you've got this one guy who just prays to Jesus, help my unbelief, help my faithlessness. Right? And I'm thinking that Mark wants us to understand 
that that response, prayer, is a bodily, tangible, physical, tactile expression of trust. The world is falling apart. I'm going to hop on social media and talk about how bad the other guys are instead of going in my closet and asking Jesus to be at work. Which one is faith? Sorry, not sorry. Like, let's do the self-diagnosis, folks. The world, they don't know it, but they need the church to be in the closet on our knees. Weeping, praying, interceding over the brokenness and the divisiveness. Not contributing to it, friends. Not contributing to it. Calling upon Jesus to heal and redeem. And let his gospel go forward and his church be holy. Filled with the love that took Jesus to the that's what these guys are not doing when they're arguing. It's not my fault, it's their fault. How about we are inadequate, Jesus? We are not in control. We want your best. We surrender. And what does this, pr- I mean, this prayer look like? It may be speechless. There are times, friends, when I found myself wanting to pray and not knowing how to pray, and just like there's just this. Sometimes maybe you've experienced there's just this groan, like just inarticulate pain in the midst of that prayer, and that in that writhing, groaning sorrow, there is an invitation for Jesus to be at work with his wisdom and his grace and his perfectness. Sometimes prayer is just praying the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, which means we're not in control. (laughs) We don't have it together. Forgive us our trespasses. That means we don't have it together. Sometimes prayer is confessing our sin. Lots of times prayer is confessing our sin. Prayer is praying for our enemies instead of blasting them on the internet. This is what Jesus calls his people to do. And if we don't do it, we're not his people. It's that simple. The disciples here, they are not where they need to be. And if you'd asked John Wesley, what is Christian faith? He would have said, it's not the faith of the disciples before the resurrection. Why? Because clearly they are not trusting Jesus. They're doing something But that kind of full reliance on him doesn't come till later. And that, friends, is, of course, why I have hope. And why we can all have hope. Because Jesus, it becomes very clear with Peter's story and the other disciples who are just a disaster. You read on past Mark into Acts, Jesus uses people who don't have it all together to fill the world with his gospel. It takes some surrender, doesn't it? It takes saying, Jesus, I don't have it all together. But when that moment comes, all of a sudden, that's when his power comes. 
That's when the people of God are able to embody all of his beauty and all of his glory, despite the fact that we are disasters. And I think God takes joy in that. Realizing we don't have it all together is a process of agreeing with God that we need him This world will do everything it can to shame people who appear not to have it all together. Very few people tell you how broken they are on Facebook. Every now and then somebody will, and everybody thinks they're weird. Most people put the shiny, happiest, greatest thing on there. Nobody, like, pulls out their phone while they're fighting with their spouse. Hey, check it out. What's going on? Live stream, right? Because we want to look like we've got it all together, and society says you've got to look like you've got it all together. So here is a platform where you can show everyone your fancy new profile pic and your lovely new outfit and your, you know, whatever it is, right? So that the world will think you've got it together. And Jesus is saying, come to me and confess the fact that you don't have it together. And then, right, with that prayer, help my unbelief. Jesus says, then, then, and then, you will experience my riches. But as long as you hold on to your agenda, your control, it's very hard for Jesus to be Lord. So let's not lose hope. If Peter and the other apostles can become the foundation of the church, Jesus can use a bunch of ragamuffins like us to fill the world with his beauty. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.